Well, today we're going to talk about the Epistles of St. Paul, called Letters of Life. And we're going to start out with some background on Paul. Then we're going to go through each one of the individual writings you know, that we have from the Apostle Paul. Let's start out with our background. The word epistle is just a, is a Greek word for basically uh, something a missive you send that has news in it. And the, the Romans just took the Greek word. Romans at this time, edu educated Romans were bilingual. You know, they spoke Greek, they actually learned, they actually had nannies and things, and they also had like these tutors, so they actually learned natively. So educated Romans at this time were bilingual. And so they, so they thought that was a great word, so it became the Latin word too. Now let's talk about Paul's. He was originally Saul of Tarsus. And the first thing to notice that's really going to be important in his career is, let me tell you something about the Jewish world that's really important to understand a lot of the controversies at this time. Okay, there are basically two types of Jews. It's like this is most Jews no longer lived in the Holy Land. And that means they lived elsewhere in the Roman Empire, which they mean they took on Greek culture. And they typically lost everything except their religion. They lost everything Jewish. They weren't, they weren't Middle Eastern anymore. They were Greek culture. And they call, we call them Hellenists. But that simply meant they were people who had, it's sort of like an Italian versus an Italian-American. They might have warm, fuzzy feelings, but they're not Italian. They don't speak the language. You know, they might think, yeah, I re-identify that way, but it's not the same thing as living in Italy and speaking Italian. <laughs> it's not quite the same thing. And so what we have is this constant thing in the Jewish world between what they called Hebrews, what that meant, when they called it a Hebrew of Hebrews, meant an actual Aramaic speaker, someone who actually was culturally Jewish. I mean, they spoke Aramaic at home. You know, that uh, not Hebrew was a dead language. When they talk about Hebrew, it, they say he spoke in Hebrew. Gentiles, Greek people, refer to Hebrew basically as it's like saying Jew talk. It's how the Jews talk. <laughs> it, it doesn't mean the actual Hebrew language when it says he spoke to the rest of the Hebrew. No one would have understood it. It was a, you know, it's something that he spoke the language of the Hebrews. So Paul, okay, actually is, is, is going to be an amazing situation because what's going to happen with him is going to be a lot of, probably part of God's plan for him was he had him raised in a Hellenistic environment. So he spoke perfect Greek. Matter of fact, the Romans said, wow, your Greek's raised. He's a Roman citizen. He was raised in a thoroughly Greek environment. Yet he was thoroughly, really Hebrew. His family spoke. He's not about Hebrew of Hebrews. They spoke Aramaic. You know, and he had a Jewish education. He went to, he went to rabbinical academies. He studied in Gamaliel. So he actually was bicultural the real thing, he actually had a foot in both cultures, which is gonna be brilliant when it comes to his special role as the apostle to the Gentiles, because he truly understands both civilizations. Yeah, he lives in them, he speaks their language, he knows their background. So this is gonna be really important. And again, in the earlier church, when we talk about Judaizers, one of the big problems was, remember in the backs of the apostles with the Hellenists, is Jews in, 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 in the Holy Land were worried that because these people, we always had to worry about the faith being corrupted by outside sources. So they're worried that even though they were well intended, the Jews who lived among Greeks would pick up Greek thinking and sort of bring that into their Judaism. You know, they start thinking Greek, you know, just bring it to their Jewish religion. So that's why in the Acts of the Apostles, they're always like Stephen is martyred in that. Stephen is a Greek name, he's Greek, he's a Hellenist. And they're worried, and he starts talking about things that, that seem, wait a second, he's trying to change, he's not really a full Jew that he's a Jew, he's one of them. So there's a suspicion of anything that will take away from traditional Hebrew way of doing things. And where that's where the Judaizers say, well, if you become a Christian, well, of course you'd have to become a, a Jew in every sense first. Okay, so he's going to be this great bridge because he's from both cultures. 
He, we know that he uh, converted on the road to Damascus. He has a personal call from the risen Lord Jesus. Okay, and he's a church planner, three missionary uh, journeys. Now, he claimed, it's very important, remember when we have to replace Matthias in Acts of the Apostles? They say, what do you have to have to be in it to fill that, that place? It says, well, you have to be with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, and you have to have seen the risen Christ. Now, those were the two standards to be an apostle. You know, filled in one of those positions. You had to have been with the Lord, one of the band of the Lord, for the entire time. And you had to see the risen Lord. Now, this clearly isn't true of Paul. Paul saw the risen Lord Jesus. But he had never had anything to do with Jesus during his life. So one of the challenges he will face is people challenging his apostleship. Saying, yeah, Peter, John, I understand that. They were just like, who's this guy? And so he's going to claim again that he has a direct connection. And one of the reasons that's true, you say, well, how can they give those criteria? Is remember, the reason we have 12 apostles is symbolic of that God is keeping his promise to Israel. There are 12 tribes of Israel. He keeps his promise to Israel. There are 12 apostles. And when Matthias goes, and Judas goes, it has to be replaced. It's to show that nothing is compromised about God keeping his promise to Israel. But that doesn't mean that all apostles have to meet that kind of thing. So later on, Jesus personally calls Paul because of his unique background. You know, for this. So he is a full apostle, but he'll have difficulties with people who will challenge that and say, wait a second, you're not one of them, etc. You know, yeah, you're nice, you know. So that's going to be a problem he faces. We said that Acts of the Apostles for those you with in that teaching. The book is really the Acts of Peter and Paul, and one of the main themes of the book is that Peter and Paul are equal. The first part of the book is the book is the Acts of Peter, and Paul has a cameo appearance. Then we have, Paul shows up and does everything Peter does. He has the same miracles. The whole idea is it's the same gospel, the same thing, they're on the same team. Then Peter has the academy of the So one of the things we'll see in the start of the crisis will be in it, he's, he bridges that gap. Okay. Let's talk about the order of presentation, which is so unmodern. This is very typical of how ancient people think is how do you arrange the letters of Paul? Well, they said there are two different types of letters. Some are addressed to churches, and others are addressed to people. So they put those in two categories. But how do you organize things within a category? Now, for those of us who are very linear uh, thinkers in the West, we think, well, of course, chronological order, right? Oh, no, no, no. You are just so not ancient. You put them from longest to shortest. So that's how we actually arrange them, which is not at all helpful. For example, we're going to find out that the epistles of Galatians, what Romans is, is the letters of the Galatians was, a, have you ever got a really mad written a letter? That's Galatians. I mean, he writes this letter. I mean, he really goes off. At one point, he simply says, talking about circumcision, he said, I wish the knife would slip. That's actually what he said. That's what he said. Uh, so this was not, this is not his ideal response. So the letter to the Romans is his ideal response. Now, sitting down, I'll give you a full technical accounting for my arguments. But we put it out back. We have Romans first, and we have Galatians. That kind of thing. You have things that are sort of... And we have the earliest writing of all at the end, tail end, uh, Thessalonians. So what they did is... By the way, this is how the Quran is arranged. It's a typical thing. In the Quran, except for the, the, the Tiha, which is like they're our father, which begins the book, they have the longest surah, the chapter called surahs, which is the cow, and it goes all the way to the shortest. <laughs> That's just how ancient people thought. So we're going to talk today of getting over this and what the real order is, which can be very helpful, really, in understanding and reading the, the, uh, the letters. Now, 
there are basically four groupings of letters logically. And it's really neat because they're going, to, they're going to have, each one is going to have a logical theme as we move on in progression. We'll start out with the second missionary journey. We'll then have the third missionary journey. He'll write some letters. Then we'll have the captivity, okay, when he's in prison. And finally, we'll have after his release and later imprisonment. Now, let's try the second missionary journey. And I, each one of these periods, what I love about it, has a key theme. Now, look at the date on this. By the way, very high first Thessalonians, when we talk about it, is going to is the earliest Christian writing of anything we have, any sort of Bible, out of the Bible, nothing. There's no, this is the earliest writing we have from a Christian, is 1 Thessalonians. And it's written in 50 AD. Well, given that Christ was probably born like 6 BC or something, we're talking about it's a little like, it's, it's like 25 years after Jesus has left us. So the point is that people are really, one of the big things that strikes them is Christ is coming back. And so they have a very, eschatology from Greek means the study of last things. That's kind of last, you know, the study of last things. How will the world end? And they're naturally very much alive. We've heard, you know, Christ is coming back, and this is really central to, you know, their, their perspective on things. And so this, these letters deal primarily with issues of last things. Since we are living in the last days, what does that look like to live in the last days? The last shall be first. Yes, the last shall be first. But it's sort of one of these things, if you sadly, uh, you might someday have this, you might have the, the, the tumor talk. Sadly, what you have when you get it, when you, when you have a serious thing, the doctor sits down and she gives you the tumor talk. And the first thing she says is, don't quit your job. You know, this is not a time you saying, we're living in dramatic, how do you deal with dramatic times? You might say, whoa, if this is true, how do I live? If you're telling me, you know, if someone comes to the doctor and says, I have cancer, what does that mean? Should I quit my job, take the vacation, what should I do? So the first thing in the tumor talk is, don't make any big decisions. Don't your job, <laughs> you know. But the question here is going to be, those are the kind of questions. They're in a similar situation. If Christ is coming back, you know, in the, in your, what does that mean for us? You know, how do we live in that? So eschatology is the big theme of First and Second Thessalonians. Okay. And we'll come, we'll go we'll do each of these letters uh, individually for us. It's just to give you a basic background. So we start out with Christ is coming back, and what does that mean for my life? How does that change how I live? The next thing is the third missionary journey. We have Galatians, which came up from a crisis. You know, it was a, a crisis letter, something to have gone terribly wrong in churches that Paul had, uh, had established. We have First and Second Corinthians that also had to deal with, first of all, originally problems in a crisis problems that turn into a crisis. Okay, and then we have Romans simply saying, if I had more time, I would have written this, you know, with, Gal <laughs> with Galatians, and he gives a, a treatise on it. Here's my, my considered thoughts, you know, really written out here uh, in full. Okay, now here, we're now beyond the theme. We've talked, we've clarified what does it mean to live in the last times, but he said, let's focus on how we're saved. What does it mean to be saved? How does that happen? We call that soteriology, from the Greek word for saved. You know, what does it mean to be saved? How are we saved? What does it mean to be saved? So that's the theme of these letters, you know, a big theme underlying it. Now that we're past, you know, how do we live in the last days? Well, we've been saved, so what does that mean? How can we be sure that, that we're in the, you know, how can we be sure of this? So that's our theme is salvation, uh, soteriology. The next are the, cap the period of captivity, and we have four epistles here, Colossians, Philemon's a private letter. Uh, really uh, neat little letter. And then we have Ephesians and Philippians. Now the key thing here is we know we're saved through Jesus Christ. We know that. But you know, if he's done this, then the, but salvation isn't just something he did. The self, Christ is our salvation. 
it's not just something he did. He's just an instrument, like, you know, like a tool he used. He is our salvation, so we want to know more about Christology. Who's Christ? Who is this, the one who, who actually is our salvation? Not simply an agent of salvation. He actually is our salvation. And he says, it's no longer I believe, it's Christ who lives in me. <laughs> who is this Christ? Christology. And finally, we have, during the, after the, his release and later imprisonment, we have letters to Timothy and Titus. And this is the, the classic thing is, we, as Christians, we don't just live, we live together. You know, we live as a community. Ecclesiology. Ecclesia is, is a Greek term for call out. And it's what we use, like in Latin, it's exactly the equivalent uh, in Latin from, from that. Ek means like an exodus, out of the Greek. Ecclesia, they call their places, anything that means called. Like paraclete, the one who's called to stand beside you. Okay, so a church means the ones who have been called together. Like we would say, you know, a convocation with the Latin, exact Latin translation. Convocate, the ones called together to be together. So how do we live together? So we've been called to live together. The church is the ones called to live a common life. What does that common life look like? You know, how do we live in community? And that's the main theme of these three letters. Now, let's look at the individual epistles as we go through. Uh, the first is with eschatology, the second missionary journey, and we talk about Thessalonica, the Thessalonians. Uh, look at that map there. Greece at this time, the Romans divided into two separate provinces. And so the north was called Macedonia. And actually, it's not, Macedonia is not so much narrow place, but the Romans just used the term like for everything. It's like calling the Midwest Illinois. You know, they just made the province. Let's take it from the name of the one thing. So they called all of northern Greece, they called it Macedonia. This is the capital of Macedonia. It's an important place. It's the capital of Macedonia. And down in the south, you see Corinth. The southern part of Greece is called Achaia. Okay? And so Corinth is the capital of southern Greece. So we talk about Thessalonians and Corinthians. This is natural because these are the two capitals of, the, of, of Greece. Northern Greece is Thessalonica, and southern Greece is Achaia. Athens is just a university town. It's the Madison, Wisconsin at that time. You know, it's, it's not an important uh, you know, place that way. It's a, it's a university town. It's important that way, but its glory days are over. Okay. Now, this again, 1 Thessalonians is the earliest writing we have of any Christian writing. There's nothing earlier than this. And Paul actually founded this church. If you look at Acts of the Apostles in chapter 17, we actually see how found, Paul founded the church there at Thessalonica. Okay, and what's his purpose? This is really neat. In a lot of Pauline letters, because we have to deal with real people in real situations, we have a lot of correction that has to come up, naturally. Things we've got to straighten out. I love you guys, but we have to straighten this out type of thing. This is really refreshing. The letter's completely 100% positive. It's all good news. I mean, he's, he's very happy with, with them. And he knows that it's, they're having a lot of flack. You know, having accepted the gospel, they're running into a lot of practical flack, which is hard. Now, what do we do with this? You know, he wants to hope that he's, he desperately wants for them to stay faithful in the face of flack. People aren't celebrating their decision to be a Christian. Okay. And so it's all about encouraging them. And one of the things that we should lose, I'm, I'm going to try to emphasize some things for us for ministerially that are important, is he tells us, you know, salvation, what is salvation? And he says, well, we're going to be saved in the last day with Jesus Christ. It's a future thing. So a fundamental theological truth we want to remember is salvation is a process in this sense. 
If somebody asks you, have you been saved? You say, yes, the blood of Jesus. I have been saved. I am being saved, and I will be saved. You see what I'm saying? Because I have been saved. I've been washed in the blood. However, my salvation, he says, that we're being transformed into that same image. And then we have, finally, that our fullness of our salvation, the promise of God, is in our resurrection bodies when we look at God face to face. So it's a, it would be a mistake for us. You know, so the important thing is we don't want to lose that side. That sometimes we act like well, I've been saved in the sense that there's nothing, I, this is the best it gets. You know, right here. No. This is the beginning of it. It's like being born. You're, you're going to grow into a full woman, a full man. This is a beauty. This is absolutely the beginning. It's glorious. This is the beginning of a beautiful thing that will only have its culmination when you have a full woman or a full man. It's when we actually with Jesus in our risen bodies. So that's something we don't want to lose because very often we try to treat like this is the salvation. Imagine if the people who left Egypt, when they just got on the other side of the Red Sea, say, okay, we're saved there. It looks like a desert to me. This doesn't look like, it isn't the promised land. The promised land is in Canaan. So it's true we're not free from sin, but we still have a long way to go. So we're absolutely free and it's glorious. Our life is different, but we shouldn't confuse that. Well, let's just settle out here forever. No, we're on our way to a heavenly city. So it's an important thing never to lose sight. Because we just, that's why some Christians get discouraged. They think, well, this is all there is. Looks pretty much like a desert. And he said, no, no. Is we've been saved from the power of sin, but we're still walking constantly being transformed. Our ultimate salvation, that couldn't be better, is we're actually going to join into the very participate, the very life of God in our resurrected bodies. We'll see God face to face. That's the real hope. We never want to lose sight of that. Sometimes we treat that like it's like an epilogue. Well, if you like that, you have that too. Like the real thing is right now, you know. No, no, this is just the beginning. Otherwise, people get discouraged saying, I don't think my life is perfect. You know, I don't think it's, you know, I'm walking on clouds or something. It shouldn't be. They were in a desert, right? They had to walk through the desert. So it's important to keep that sense to remember that we have to have, yes, we are absolutely saved. We're already, it's already, but not yet. We're absolutely living in the life of Christ. But in no way is this all there is. To do otherwise and discourage people, they start lying, pretending they're happy when they're not. Is we should be happy. Abraham, he's, he's looking for a heavenly city. In the book of Hebrews, it said none of them had their promises fulfilled because they were waiting for something better. That ultimate salvation is with the Lord. So this is a good thing to remember. Because we now play down eschatology in a sense that we don't have that, we know the Lord can come at any time, but we don't have that immediate thought that you can be here right now. But it's still the central to our faith. Our ultimate hope will be on that great day when we see the Lord face to face. Okay. Now, uh, one of the things that worried them as a practical thing was this. Is they say, what happens? In, let me tell you something about the ancient world you might know. In the modern, in the modern West, we are so spoiled. Is it's like on a plane. On a plane, the really dangerous times are take off and touchdown, or what the really dangerous times of the plane. So too it is with health. Your biggest chance about dying and things are in birth, you know, dying in birth, or in old age. That's the that's when things happen. But otherwise, in the modern West, unless a freak accident happens, typically, like people your age are invincible. I mean, I, I, you know, I used to work, I, you know, I'm a CPA and things, I used to work with people, I actually spoke to actual convention and things, you know, these kind of things. I'm here to tell you that young people just don't die. It's a freak accident. We say it's a tragedy when that. In the ancient world, people died all the time. Why? Uh, the reason they died was because things that are, you know, for example, infections meant you died. <laughs> they often turned into anger into things. We don't even take them seriously, right? You just get some antibiotics. People are forever having bad things happen. So what was happening to this community is saying, well, some of the people who, who've taken the message died. That means they're out of this now. We were waiting for Jesus to come and save us, and they're dead. 
Does that mean they sort of lost it? And that's where Paul says, this is how we put the hope of the general resurrection on the last day. He says, they will actually be first. You know, first they will be raised, and then we with them will join the Lord in the clouds. So he's saying, don't worry about people, which is a real consideration for the Christians. They died too soon. You know, they didn't make it in time to see the Lord. So, oh, you're not missing anything. They won't even be at the end of the line. They'll be died there. They'll, they'll be raised first. Then the living, we the survivors, will come and join them in there to meet the Lord. So that is the, the issue. That we, because they know all new, new people would die in a short time. In the ancient world, it always happens. People are always dying. And they wanted that brother, that mother, etc., to be with them. He said, that's not a problem. They'll be right on the front lines with you. You might have to catch up with them. Yes? So if, if Paul is saying we were living during the Lord, is that, do you think that Paul also thinks that Jesus' return is going to be really No, he's saying from that perspective. Right now, he's going to any of us who are living at this time, we the living. I mean, not that they're all going to be living, but saying that the right now they put themselves in this category of living. Like, like right now, you put yourself in the category of the tumor talk of people without cancer. <laughs> but you know, that could change it in a time. And you're saying, from the point of view, right now, that's the perspective you would have on things. And he's saying, yeah, that's we the living. I mean, right now, if you're saying, what's about us today? He's saying, yeah, we the living. Even though we're living now, we're not going to be separated from these people. He doesn't. He's not saying that they would live. Excellent question. Please, as we go through, make sure to ask your questions on these. Okay, so this is a very, this is sometimes a played down letter, but it's a beautiful letter. I would really encourage you. And again, I really think our lesson to take away from this is to remember, ultimately, the good news, it starts right now, but we sometimes act with when we, when we preach the gospel, like it all happens now. And that's not good enough. You know, Paul himself said, you know, that, he said, if this is the world, if this world is everything, then we're, we're probably the most to be pitied if there's no resurrection. So we sometimes sort of pedal a bait and switch, like, you know, salvation really means you have this fabulous life now. No, it doesn't. It's where we have the way of the cross. We have, oh, it's, we already start with you. It's a beautiful thing, but that's not the salvation. That's the beginning of the salvation. We don't want to lose that because if we lie to people, no matter how well intended, we tell them this truth, they will figure this is not the promised land. And they're right. It's the desert. But it's going to. Okay, uh, Second Thessalonians, written shortly thereafter, it's a follow-up letter, and things apparently are getting more dramatic. Because what's happening, first of all, is a lot of people are getting so obsessed about you know, Christ's return, he's saying, look, first of all, he said, we know that some things happen, it's not gonna happen tomorrow in this, this sense. He said, we are also told some things have to, have to happen first, like the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is saying. So he said, yes, it's going to happen, but you know, before we think this is the only thing to think about, there's a lot of intermediary things, even now, so we shouldn't just focus on this entirely. There's more to it before this happens. It won't be tomorrow morning because we know this hasn't happened yet. The man of lawlessness is in that has to happen. And then he talked about how do we then live? Is that we have to stay invested in daily life. Like I told you, the tumor talk type of thing is saying, so I mean, don't, you don't just, just quit your job and sit back and wait to die. He said, you need to be, in, you need to be pushing in instead of pulling back. There are people who stop working. They're saying, if work's coming, well, let's just stop working and live off the community. And he said, no, no. He said, those who don't work don't eat. He said, guys, you might be well intended, but you know, this should be, our hope in Christ doesn't change our degree of responsibility. You know, we don't pull back, we press into life. We don't pull back, even though we are, our, we hope for the, for the Lord, we don't use that as an excuse to simply pull back from life. 
that our weight is done. Like in Jesus, all these parables, he said, you know, what do we do? Is we get ready, like those virgins with the lamp, they got, they, you bring oil. You know, he talks about you're investing. Remember the guy who goes off for the wedding feast and comes back. He gives them talents. You're supposed to be using those now. You're not like the guy who buries it and waits for, waits for him to come back. So it's that basic theme from Jesus that there's no contradiction in active waiting. That as we wait, we're still investing the talents. We're still getting the oil. We're not just sitting back. Well, he's coming. We'll just sit here and wait. We get there. He gets it. Make sense? Okay. Third missionary journey. Okay, here, uh, Galatia. Let me tell you a different. Galatia, you see that map there? Galatia's an area where Galatians live. Well, Galatians are interesting. I have an affinity with them. Galatians are actually a Celtic people. Now, the land of France, where land France today was, used to be called Gallia. Does that sound a lot like Galatia? It does, because it's, it's, it's related. The same types of Celts who live in France lived here. They're actually related peoples. <laughs> so the, the, these are Celtic peoples. You know, the peoples of the original peoples of Spain and, and, and today's France, and they were Celtic peoples too. And what happened though is the Romans, when they would have a new province, would put a lot like, like the Europeans do when they went to Africa. They would ignore all the real lines and things and make these artificial things. We use one of the names to describe things that had nothing to do with most of the people there. They happen to know this tribe, and suddenly everything's named after them, even though most of the people there are some, some other group. So they, the province of Galatia was much bigger, it involved Frisia, Laconia, and Pisidia. So it really probably involved the whole Roman province. You know, that whole area there was probably the Galatians he's talking about. So what had happened in the letter to the Galatians? First of all, is written in 53, there's a real challenge. Okay, people are denying Paul's status as an apostle. Why are they doing that? It's not to be mean. Is because they have to undermine him because they are, again, we talk about these people who say, we have to make sure that Judaism is protected. And to them, an existential threat was anything that took away from the law of Moses. That had become the definition of what it meant to be a Jew, is to follow the 613 commandments. And circumcision is right up there, very high on the list, all it's in order for the pure. Okay, on that, on that list. And so these people are saying, whoa, 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 first of all, you, you have to be a Jew. You know, the good news is there, this is called Judaizing, is now everybody, you don't have to be born into a Jewish family. Anyone can become a Jew, thanks to Jesus. It means you would follow the law like other Jews. But you would, Judaism has simply expanded, has expanded to take you in, is the message. Now, since Paul wasn't preaching that message, they have to say, well, Paul, you know, he's just another guy. Maybe well-intended, but, you know, he's, frankly, uh, he's not an apostle. And look at those guys with apostles back in Jerusalem. They're following the law, aren't they? Right? They're following the law of Moses and things like James and Jerusalem. So they're trying to bring that division, and they're challenging his authority since he's preaching something different. Okay. And in some ways, it's the first draft of the letter to the Romans. Like I said, it's, he's heartsick with this. He said, I can't believe this. I just left you guys. You were great, and you had great examples of the Holy Spirit working. How could you possibly go back? What are you thinking? <laughs> You've traded steak for hamburger. What, what are you thinking about? Why would you ever go back from the spirit, you know, to the flesh? You're going in the reverse direction. You're, the car's in reverse, dude. Not in the view. Okay. <laughs> now, he says, first of all, he says, I'm in no way inferior to the other apostles. He's going to end, and again, the point here is not a personal thing. He's saying, this is a fact of his call from Jesus, and the he's bringing the very message of Jesus. He 
said, look, I'm not inferior. I got a direct call from Jesus. He appeared to me in that room. And by the way, if you have any doubts about this, how else do you think it could have happened? Just use your head. How could someone who's the most famous hater of Christians, an active thing, overnight become their proponent? It's obvious that something happened. I met Jesus Christ. I personally met him. And he said, I, I don't get my authority because the apostles said he's a good guy. We're going to definitely He said, I didn't even see them for years. You know, when I first got, I went out, and, you know, I went out, what they call the radios, what we call Syria. The radio is a much different place than this. It's much bigger. He said, I went out there, and then I came, I didn't even see them for years. When I finally went down to Jerusalem, I did check in with the apostles, and they heard me and said, yeah, that's right. That's a, you know, we, they recognized me. But that's not the basis of my authority. My authority comes not from the apostles saying yes, but from the direct commission of Jesus Christ. And they recognized that. They gave me the right hand of fellowship, and they recognized, yes, you're one of us. Okay. Then he says, okay, what's the heart here? As he said, here's the trouble with law and gospel, why they're incompatible. You know, why would God give up his son in a messy death for something we could have done ourselves? That doesn't make any sense. He said, if it were possible for us to save ourselves, we'd just try harder. <laughs> he said, the only possible justification is that there was no other option. So we know the law can't work, because if we say the law works in the sense it can bring salvation, we're saying Christ's death was in vain. There's no need for it. You know, it just was needless. It's like somebody giving you their, their uh, giving you a, 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 a kidney, or, or what can you do it? Kidneys or livers, whatever you donate, okay. Uh, uh, you know, why would you do that if you don't need it? I mean, if be say that, why would we put all the surgery, why would we put anyone to that risk unless somebody were near death? Why would we possibly just, oh, who knows, we'll take your liver in case. So he said the first thing that's wrong you have to understand is the law would mean, if you believe you can be safe from the law, there is no reason to have Jesus Christ. Then we can just follow the law better. He said that's certainly not true. Then he says, here's the trouble about the law, and you might miss this. In the ancient world, what happens is this. Watch it happen in the modern times, too. In the ancient law, when you were raised, you had somebody, uh, if you're a, a guy, you had a, uh, in, in, a, in their version of, you know, a regular uh, citizen's family or something, you had a tutor, a uh, pedagogist, they were called, you know, basically the kid guy, sort of like a male nanny, because he's also charged with your education, especially to make sure you learn Greek. Uh, but you have this, uh, you're, you have this tutor and things, his job, he had to take care of you, make sure everything's okay. All right. Now, he said, you know, even though you're the son, he said the law was like that. The law was like a tutor. You know, God gave us, you know, someone because we couldn't handle things ourselves just to make sure we didn't make some deadly mistakes. And he said, you know, the trouble with being a kid is you're just as good as a slave because you can't make any of your own decisions, can you? are technically free. I mean, you're not like a slave, but after all, you take orders as much as the slaves do in the hospital. You're not free. And I love when Galatians says, for freedom you've been set free. Being under the law is, is slavery by another form. Yeah, you're officially a son, but for all practical purposes, you're like any, any slave in the house. You say, we take orders from you. It's like being 40, year old, 40 years old living in your parents' basement. Yeah, you're an adult, but basically you might as well be a 17-year-old, right? If you're eating their food, you know, borrowing their car, etc. So he's saying, you have to understand that it's the same as being a slave. We were called to freedom. We were called to full adulthood, not to be in permanent childhood. Okay. And then he talks about flesh versus spirit. And when we're talking about works, works of the law, doing all the Jewish things, circumcision and foods and this kind of things, he said, okay, the trouble is the real heart, and he, he's pretty graphic, he's thinking of circumcision is actually cutting off some flesh. Okay, he said, 
Christianity is much more radical than that. That's symbolic. The flesh, by the word sarcos, the word rubric, they use it in the New Testament to refer to everything that's transient about us. We use the word soma to mean the body in the sense of like even our resurrection body, what's permanent. Sarks means something that um, that's inherently transient, something that'll eventually rot and die. You know, that's you know, that's the thing that's the transient part of our body. And that's that's sarks. And that's called the flesh. We translate English as the flesh. It means body. But he's saying, uh, you know, we're talking about getting rid of the flesh altogether. We're not talking about a symbolic part. We're talking about everything which is corrupted, everything which is subject to corruption because of original sin, right? Every, all those things that are, are disordered in us. We have to leave all that behind, not just a piece of flesh. He said, we're really into circumcision. You talk about, you call that circumcision a piece of physical flesh? We're talking about actually laying aside the flesh, you know, all that stuff which has been distorted by sin. So that's what he's arguing. This is the trouble between spirit and flesh. You're confusing ritual for reality. He said, we're a lot more than that. We're talking about, you know, there's a lot more than that. It's like confusing the diploma for the knowledge you learned earning the degree. <laughs> okay, the letters to the Corinthians now is Corinth, we say, is the capital of Achaia, southern Greece. It was a great, it's an isthmus. You look at that map there, see the isthmus? It's a, this tiny little thing. And that was good news for Corinth because it was a long way around. It's like a Panama Canal type of thing. It was a lot cheaper to stop off there, unload, and bring it across than to sail all the way around. So it was really a big port that way. It was a very important port. People stopping. It was very important economically. And also, it's, you'll love this, guys. It was a sports town. It was big time. That's why we have the sports analogies in letters to the Corinthians. It was, it was like, think of Green Bay, where the town is just a sports town. Uh, is that this is where they had the Corinthian Games, which were really a big deal. Every, every two years, they had the Corinthian Games there. So when he talks about athletes and boxing and running and these kind of things, it's right home. The place where people had these big international games. Okay, the Corinthian Games. He founded the church there in 18. In Acts 18. Okay, now there are four interrelated letters. Okay, uh, the first we'll talk about. The first there was originally a letter Paul. We don't have it, but we know, and I can, I'll tell you later how we know that. Is people from Corinth that sent him a letter with some questions after he set off the church there. They said, "Hey, some questions have come. Can you tell us what the answer is?" So they actually send him a letter asking some questions. Another thing we have is he writes First Corinthians to answer those those questions, among other things. Then afterwards. We know that something really, we'll talk about something really bad happened after he left Corinth that really hurt his feelings and things. And so he wrote what we call the letter in tears. And he said, look, it basically went like this. I was planning to go back there, but I wanted to be, I wanted to be a good visit. Have you ever had a lot of relative things saying, I don't want you to come when we have a sort of settled time? When you come for Thanksgiving, I'll be celebrating, now sorting out things. So he said, you write a roll and say, we gotta sort this out before I come back. I, I really want to see you, but it has to be the right way. I don't want to spend all of our time who shot John. You know, I want this to really be a time of, uh, okay. And then we have 2 Corinthians. So there are those three letters. We have the first letter they'd written to him. He founded the church. He goes away. They write, hey, we have some questions. He writes back. Then something happens after that. We'll tell you what it was, what it appears to have been. And he's really broken heart. So he writes a letter saying, look, I've been planning to come to you guys. I, I want to settle this first. I, I want this to be really good business. We've got to settle this up before we get to him again. And then we have 2 Corinthians. Happily, it's been settled. Those are the four letters, two of which are in the Bible. Okay. The first one, the purpose was to respond to some questions raised by the Corinthians. Okay. 
And also within the church, he said, now, Chloe's people, you know, say, <laughs> have told me there's some things going on that they're concerned about, and I want to talk to you about. So he's saying, here's the questions you raised, and I want to tell you about some things that I've heard from letters from you guys that you didn't raise, but I think I need, I need to raise. So those are the two basic subject matters that we have for 1 Corinthians. And the first challenge is divisions. And this is very easy to understand in a movement, something that's very, you know, very alive in things, is people are identifying with individual leaders. And we'll talk more about this. So he's saying this is actually causing divisions like party spirit. You know, people sort of looking at divisions. Um, and one of the reasons this letter is so important to us is it tells us what a real church was like. It's an inside story. We, this is, our knowledge really Christianity about this letter would be basically weakened. This is real life people. Otherwise, we get this idea of like, you know, you know like some, one of those Bible movies or something. Everyone's sweet and holy. And, you know, we're seeing real people, you know, dealing with real problems in Corinth. And we also get to know a lot about Paul, especially in, wow, in 2 Corinthians, we learn a lot about him personally. His, not just personality, his background, you get a lot of information about Paul. So these uh, letters, so 1 Corinthians is the initial the letter. And one of the big issues he has is power versus weakness and wisdom versus folly. Let me explain. With Jews, their great claim, by the way, you know, there's not a really great argument in the Old Testament as to why we should believe God. You know, they don't make a philosophical argument for the existence of God. God is given. And he's demonstrated his power. He took his people out of Egypt. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's done. That's power. So you think Jews are big into power. Show me, show me the fact. Show me the empirical data. That's power versus weakness. So that, and Greeks were big into show me the idea that this is logical, you know, they, we can prove this. This logically follows, you know, that's a very Greek way. They call it wisdom, following a plan. You know, this, is, this is demonstrable. Anybody looking at this evidence can, can see this. And he says, so the Jews seek science. They're a big, big deal. How do we know things as we know the God working, the empirical doubt of God working? The Greeks say, forget about empirical data. We can prove to you based on our human reason. We can, we can reason. Here's how God should behave. You know, he, if he's perfect, he should, you know, we, we, can, we can come up with this. And he said, here's the news, guys. It's the opposite of both. Why? Because God's strength appears as weakness. Because the greatest moment for God, that's what he calls it, the moment of Christ's glory was on the cross. It's on the cross that Christ won the victory over death and sin. It looks to human eyes like the worst, the exact opposite. You're the Son of God, come down from that cross. We'll believe in you. You're not the victorious Messiah, etc. But that was the victory. A lot bigger victory than coming another a Jewish Caesar. This is a triumph over sin and death itself. But it doesn't look to human eyes, it doesn't look like that. So he says, ironically, is God's strength looks like weakness. That's going to be the thing. You're looking for human strength. But God's strength actually is going to look like human weakness. And the other thing is the Greeks is, you know, you have all these arguments, but actually your arguments turn to nothing. In fact, you know, God doesn't live within the, the parameters you've created. God has a logic which is beyond our limitation. He's not subject to that. So he's arguing that, that there's something to offend everybody. Jews will not be pleased because God's the, the story of the cross is about the triumph of weakness. Apparently, you know, what appears to be weakness is the real strength. What appears to be folly, you know, giving your life for sinners, for people who fought against you, is the real wisdom. He says it's a world in reverse. 
Then we go to divisions of the church, and he says, why are divisions inherently unspiritual? And we should think that's the real answer. The real answer is this. How many spirits are there? One spirit, the spirit of God. One Holy Spirit. Well, if the spirit is one, how can, uh, you know, that by definition, division is, the, it's like believing in one God is the opposite of believing in multiple gods. If there's one spirit, how can there be multiple churches? How can there be divisions if there's only one spirit? It's a proof it cannot be. The spirit which makes the church is one, so how can the church be divided? That's not possible. Then he argues, he says it also violates, you know, we're God's temple. And he said it's sacrilege. He said this is not a small thing to start having breaks within the church. The church is God's temple. It's like actually starting doing, like doing vandalism in the temple. To start damaging God's temple is sacrilege. It's not an innocent act, well, I prefer this, right, or that. We have a duty to reinforce the temple, not actually cause structural damage. Then he talks about the need for sexual morality. Uh, boy, we've come around a circle here. Is uh, now as we go back into pagan sexual morality, is it was really important to people not in the context of saying we're bringing you to freedom. Some of the first thoughts of people is that means more of a sexual openness. You know, the first thing they think of, wow. And he's saying, no, that's not it. He's talking about the very important. As a matter of fact, I love where he says, every other sin is outside of the person's body. But the immoral person sins because we as Christians believe that the body is sacred. There aren't, there's no such thing as disembodied people. People are body and soul. That's how we're created. That's how we're having the resurrection of the dead. So he says, people who are, the Greeks said that the body was just a sad accident. The only thing that counted is our spirit. He said, there are no such thing as spirits independently. God made people body and soul. And we'll have a resurrection body. So you can't argue that what I do the body doesn't make difference. It does. Your body is a part of you as much as your soul is a part of you. And so it's not innocent what we do to one. What we, you know, we, the, we will inevitably be affected by how we behave in our bodies. Okay. The challenge of food offers to idols, let me tell you, sometimes people don't understand the argument Paul makes, so let's take a moment to, to explain that. Is in most early societies in the ancient world, the taking of life is a, is a sacred act. You know, to this day, for example, like uh, the Inuit people, when they, when they catch a seal or something, you know, pour the blood out ritually, you know, the sign of the, you know, the life, you know, giving up the life. That's, a, that's true. So, people didn't have regular butcher shops where people just kill meat to eat it. They always had some sort of religious connection. So in the ancient world, what happened is temples were butcher shops. They actually did the slaughtering. So you had a prayer over it, you know, and you had this, that was part of the ritual process. So the question became, well, gee, that, those are pagan temples. If I'm a Christian, can I eat meat? where people have said pagan prayers over it. And the right, let me give you what the answer is what the problem is. Paul says we cannot participate in anything which is a pagan ceremony. So we can't participate in the slaughter. And, and sometimes we'll have these meals in the church, in uh, the temple. And he said, that's too much. You know, that's like a ritual communion meal. We can't do that. But he said, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the gods are nothing. They're just make-believes. He said, once it's on the market, we're not having any ritual going with that. That's fine. Just don't ask any questions. Just eat it. Just eat it. Just meat. Here's the problem. So we understand that some people really thought in their conscience that it wasn't right because there had been pagan prayers offered. And Paul says they happen to be wrong in some of these arguments. But he says there's something more important here. We always should follow our conscience to do the right thing. If they believe that it's wrong, 
And if I then eat it, which would get them to do something that they would be wrong, well, I guess, well, I guess I should eat it too, but they don't, they're not really persuaded, they would be committing a sin. Let me give you some modern example to help you better. Let's suppose I, uh, let's say, well, of course I'm French, so I, you know, I have no problems with, uh, with wine. Okay, but let's suppose someone like me is I have somebody, uh, you know, a Christian brother, Christian sister we're gonna have dinner with, and I know that they really think it's wrong to drink. I think they're wrong, but the point is, honestly, trying to honor God, they really believe from their background it's not right. But they also are sort of embarrassed if everybody at the table now will put a bottle of wine, they'll probably have a glass thing, I guess it's okay, but they won't really feel it's right. Paul says that's what scandal is. Scandal comes from the Greek word to trip. It means to trip somebody up. So scandal doesn't mean, you can't do that because I think it's wrong. No, scandal means the opposite. It's not people tell, trying to be your boss. He says no one is going to have authority over me spiritually, but he says I don't want to do anything that would actually get somebody do something they think is wrong, which would be a sin for them. So that even though I'm, so he's like saying, you know, he says, like me, he says, I, I'd be vegetarian if that's what it took, rather, even though I know it's perfectly okay, because if I do this, because I know it's okay, but they do it and they think it's wrong, they'd be committing a sin, and I never, ever want to cause a person to commit a sin. That's the argument. And very often in the modern church and the opposite, people are just basically spiritual bullies. They'll say things like this, you know, drinking is wrong, and so you might think that good, then don't drink. But there's no question they're going to drink because you're drinking. <laughs> so that's not the point we're talking about. We're talking about people who actually might follow your example without your understanding. For them, it would be wrong. We never, ever put someone in our Make sense? That's the argument. Then we have the teaching on the Eucharist. And he's talking about, let me explain, the, in the early church, what they often had, they had basically a potluck with every Eucharist. They got together. And here's what was happening. First of all, Paul tells us in this first important in First Corinthians, he tells us that what is the meaning? You know where we get the word communion from. You know, Paul says in First Corinthians says, when you get together, it's not the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is the actual word that we often use in evangelicalism, uh, right? The Lord's Supper. Paul says that was their term for it, the Lord's Supper. But he says, he says, the, the cup that we drink, is it not a participation? The word in Greek is koinonia, which really simply means sharing. Koinonia means when you share something. It's a regular word. It's not a funny spiritual word. It's a regular word. He says it, it's, a very, it's a sharing in the actual body of Christ. The bread we drink is not a sharing. So koinonia was translated as communion. So that's what we sometimes call communion. Paul says, isn't this a communion in the body? So that's why I sometimes use the word communion. Okay. So. What he says here is, here's his problem, um, is these people here in the church had this potluck, but everybody brought their own stuff and they weren't sharing. Basically, people broke up in their own little groups. And some people really had nice stuff. You know, they were rich and they had really good food. Other people could barely afford to bring anything. There's some really poor people. And he said, let me get this straight. You come to this table to share together as one body. And you don't recognize one body when you're eating. You won't, you won't share won't share your hamburger, so to speak, joking, of course, with somebody else. You won't share, you won't share a hamburger with somebody there, but you, you claim, he said, this is, you fail to recognize the body. He's saying you can't recognize the body in the Eucharist and not recognize the body when people taking the Eucharist. They're both the body of Christ. There's the body of Christ when you take a participating body of the Lord, but also the people around me. This is the body of Christ. You can't say, I recognize this and I don't recognize that. That's the argument he's made. Now we have spiritual gifts, and what had happened in Corinth 
was people looked at spiritual gifts as a matter of self-affirmation. Um, uh, it was showing how spiritual you were. They were sort of like a report card on your spiritual growth. And he says, you get it exactly wrong. So he said, first of all, he says, everyone has a gift. A gift. That's important. Everyone has a gift. But he says it's for the common good. What we're saying is this. The gift we have isn't for me. It's for others. The only reason God gives us a gift is because somebody else in the church needs it. Okay, it's not for me. The gifts of the church are designed for somebody else. It's like somebody say, you know, often as a priest, I have people come to me and say, they don't like their spiritual gift. I say, that's great, it's not for you. Good. <laughs> you won't mind giving it away. Okay. <laughs> the gift we need, others have. So he was saying, you have it backwards. This isn't about making you feel better, meeting your spiritual needs. It's about meeting the spiritual needs of others. Gifts are for others. And he says it's all about building up. He said everything the Holy Spirit does is about building us up. It's not about dividing us, saying I'm more spiritually. It's all about bringing us closer together, not farther apart. And he said, how do you know that you're building the right direction? Well, building squad, don't they? So he's saying the culmination is love. Anything which brings us closer together, more in love, is the right direction. That's the spirit. Real spiritual gifts bring us closer together and increase our love. They don't divide us and make us jealous. And he also talks, some people are arguing that with their spiritual gift, like when we come together as assembly when we're worshiping in the body, that they were going to sort of do their personal thing. You know, five feelings says, no, it doesn't. He said, even, no, everything's going to be done in the right order. This is what we do together. This is not we just gather in a room and silo and sort of do our spiritual thing. If you have a gift that's going to be exercised, then it has to be something that has to do with all of us. It's for the common good. It's not the time to go off and do your own thing. Okay. Then we have teaching on, this is critical, on the resurrection of the body. And two things here is he talks about this is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. He says, if Christ has not risen, we are of all many most to be pitied. He said, boy, have we gotten on the wrong bus. He said, thank God, that's not true. He has risen from the dead. But this is the central core of our faith. There is no Christianity over the Everything. Depends. That's what solved. Christ solved the problem of death, which is the story of Christianity. If he hasn't, we need to do something else. Because we're talking about making choices that don't make sense apart from the truth. The good news is he has risen from the dead. Now, the other thing is what's the nature of the resurrection? Very often, people came up with silly arguments against the resurrection on the basis of what, how we live now. Remember the Sadducees? If we think that the resurrection is just this restored, like everybody gets out of grave and starts to be left off, he said, we're going to have a lot of mess. What about all those people who got remarried? The example, you know, who are they going to be married to? Look at all the mess we're going to have. And, Jesus, and Paul says he's this beautiful example. First of all, he's saying that it really is going to value this body. It is our body, but it's changed. It's like this. He said, look, when a little kid looks at a seed, uh, what does it look like to you? And it doesn't look at anything like the fire. Think of a watermelon seed. It doesn't look anything like a watermelon, but it really is the watermelon. Everything, all the, every, all the, whatever you have, scientifically, not DNA, where all the stuff you need for a watermelon in that seed. He says that's what our bodies are like. So he says they're transformed, they're not replaced. The resurrection body isn't like, throw out that body, it's a new, no, there's a real resurrection, but it's like that seed, which now becomes everything it's supposed to be. So he says, it's, it, he talks about change, our body is clothed. Not replaced, it's clothed. So it really is a resurrection of the body. Not like, oh, we'll get a brand new body. No, 
because we're trying to emphasize the importance of the one we have. But this is the core of what we're But it will be infinitely transformed so that all those concerns we have don't make any sense Like Jesus said to the Sadducees, people get married in heaven that we don't reproduce them. They don't need to. With eternal life, you have no need to replace. Second Corinthians. Now, this is the situation is what happened after, after First Corinthians. What happened apparently is this. Some of these super apostles came, you know, came, to, uh, came to Corinth. He calls them that. You know, they're really, if I'm a father, they're super. You know, they're, they're really the real thing. Ask them. Okay, and they're actually bragging on some of their credentials. They say, yeah, that was nice. He was nice, sort of like a church planner type. But here, the, the big boys have come now. The seminary grads have come. Okay, that kind of thing. The real, the real people are here now. Let's move over Paul. That's what he calls the super apostles. And he, what they're basically, apparently they attacked Paul, and here's what broke his heart. Imagine in our church, uh, well, a lot of you aren't from this, but you know, we have our Bishop Stewart is, our, is uh, here at this church, it's this home church. If somebody stood up in a meeting when, when Bishop was in one of our other churches, they started talking and started saying some really unpleasant things about, about our bishop. Well, you say well, that could happen, Sam. You know there are people who have issues. But imagine if no one stood up to say anything good. If everyone said, yeah, okay. Well, Paul felt that it happened with him. These super apostles are criticized, and no one had stood up to take his case. He feels really betrayed. Like, no one? You mean, <laughs> so that appears to what has happened. And so he, look, he writes this letter in tears, and he said, you know, um, he said he sent Titus with it, and the basic point was that we got to settle this. Meeting. I'm planning to go back there, but I don't. I want to settle first because I really want this to be a great visit. I want. I love you guys, but we've got to settle this first. I'm not going to go there and settle it underground. We got to settle this first. Okay, and then what happened is we find out. He tells us that Titus came back, and I'm so grateful to hear that everything is settled. You listened to the letter. You really reacted well. I'm so proud of you guys. So that's the story. He said when I was gone, this happened, but after I wrote this letter to you. You guys really got back in line and very happy. Okay. And then we have, he said, get ready, I'm about to come now. And he said, oh, by the way, I don't want to be embarrassed. He said, look, you know, we talked about that collection. A lot of you said, yeah, we got the stuff, and I've been telling everybody about it. Well, some other people are going to be with us. So don't act like you've never heard about this before. Have the money ready. <laughs> and he goes, I know you're all ready, but, you know, if something has happened that would be really embarrassing, it won't just be me, but some other people that will be writing on you. And you know, make, make sure, I, I know this is not new, you said you're going to have this, but make sure you're ready when they come so it doesn't look like we're just doing something. Okay. The tone for the first nine chapters is really affectionate. Like, I'm so happy that things are good between us. Now, the last chapters are pretty, pretty severe. There are two explanations. One explanation could be, and I think the, I, the one I believe, is there were still holdouts. You know, there's still people who are sort of licking their wounds. We're still all that being the whole thing. And sort of warning them. I think the other, the other is some people thought maybe this was part of that letter in tears that they simply sewed together with this, you know, uh, put it together. These are the two really like, you know, like an appendix saying here's, <laughs> here is some of that letter of tears. So, uh, what's the, oh, I'm sorry. Now, one of the things they criticized in this, in, he says in Second Corinthians, they criticized him for, is they say he's sick. He said he was going to come, and he said he went to Macedonia, so I couldn't write back here. And he said, look, guys, 
I work for the Lord. I mean, you have to understand with that, the things come up. It's like someone saying, okay, I had an appointment with a bishop. Well, it's really important. Sometimes when you're a bishop, things come up that have to be done right now and say, well, you know, I had an appointment and you broke it. Yeah, because we... <laughs> he said, I, you have to understand when you made an appointment with me, that's how it has to be. I'm working for God. And this was what I just chose differently. You know, God told me I had to do this. So you just have to, that was nothing personal. Then the thing he had, these super apostles were bragging on their, on their credentials. You know, this Paul was good enough for being a you know, church planner, but we're the real stuff. And he said, well, let's talk about credentials. I didn't want to brag, but if they insist on it, I'll brag to you. And he said, everything, I went, he said, okay, yeah, so they, they, went, to, they, went, to, they went to Penn State, I went to Harvard. <laughs> you know, he said like this. You know, he said they talk about this. I come. I'm not only Greek background. He said I, I went to the best Jewish academy. I have an education. I was a leader of the movement. There's nothing they, that they've got that I don't have better. He said I wasn't. I didn't try to impress you that way. I didn't want to get authority that way. But if they're going to play the authority card, boy, are they alone. You know, I can beat them any of those. Things. I just don't want to write about that kind of stuff. But that's not how I work. But lest you have any doubts, there is nothing they have on me in those human terms. Then he said, the typical Paul, he said, you know, now that you settle this up, I'm really grateful to you that this has happened. But I'm really worried about the guy who caused the trouble. There was a guy there who was apparently the guy who led this thing that Paul was so hurt about. And he said, you know, he, I hear that he's really sad. And sadness can be a good thing. Sadness can really get us to, to repent and turn our lives around. It can be a really good thing. But it can be very unhealthy. There's some sadness, like Jews, we just give up in despair. He said, it's really important that we separate those two. We everything sure that this is a godly truth. We don't just pray to God in this spirit. We need to doubt. We have to get a rally around him. Instead of getting mad at him because he caused all this trouble, we should be rallying around him and bringing back into the Okay. Then he talks about the famous uh, jars of clay and the hope of the resurrection, saying, we have to understand we're in this unusual position that already but not yet. We already have God living within us, this incredible treasure. But until the resurrection bodies, we're having to live with a body that's still subject to disordered affections and things. So we're sort of the strange position of a treasure basically in a cardboard box. You know, that, and that's sort of the dilemma we have to live in this world. He, he encourages generosity. He said, remember Macedonia? They were, how great they were. They were really in a tough bind as they came through. And he talks about, I love this. He said, you know, he said, uh, He's trying to encourage us about the idea that, you know, even though we've been saved, we still are going to have to fight sin in our life. There are going to be elements where we have to fight this. And the fight goes on. We'll have victory, but the fight goes on. And he said, I have this one thing in my life. He said, he calls it authority in the flesh. And he said, it's been, I just want this to be, get behind. I want closure. And three times I've talked God about this. And he said, no, 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 don't worry about it. My strength is made that What he's saying is, this is a beautiful thing, guys. Is we don't get it that. Let me tell you a Boy Scout story. I was uh, an Eagle Scout back in my day. And I remember when we did things, uh, uh, when they talk about like boating on Lake, on Lake Michigan or something, if you're out there, let's say three miles out, and you have a boating accident, who's the most likely person to drown? The best swimmer. Why? Because he's going to do something stupid like try to swim. Mm -hmm. uh, the right answer is to stay there, you know, attached and wait for help. That's the right answer. Saying, well, I'm a pretty good distance swimmer. You don't know what I mean. Undertow, you don't know those, even if you're a good swimmer. You just don't go, even though you say, I know I can swim three miles. No, you stay with the boat. And he said, the beautiful thing about weakness, it, 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 
we get to do the right thing and realize we're, we're going to be fine, but we need God's. When you play doubles tennis with God, he gets every shot. <laughs> right? You don't try. You know, there's no shame in needing God. Each time saying, I'm never going to have to stop needing you. There's no shame in that. And he's saying, that's, he said, my, my strength is manifest in weakness. When we're empty, God can fill. If we fill up, there's nothing for him to put in. So that's a powerful lesson. We often think that the thing is, I can train myself so that I won't need God anymore. No, no. Real wisdom means I need him more than ever. I realize that everything, I have complete confidence. I have the victory. But it will always be his victory. Working in me. It will not become my victory. It's not a personal self-help program. Okay, and then we have the letter to the Romans. Okay, it's the longest and most formal of those letters. It's really not a letter at all. It's a theological treatise. Okay, it's an expanded, polished version of Galatians. Now, it was written in Corinth. He was on his way back to Jerusalem to deliver the collection he was getting. And it was the same time he wrote 2 Corinthians. And interesting about the church at Rome, what had happened was, remember on the day of Pentecost, we're told there's some Jews there uh, in, in Jerusalem from Rome. For the feast. We know there was a Jewish Christian community in Rome early on. How do we know that? Because the Latin uh, historian Suetonius tells us that Claudius, the emperor Claudius in 49, had said Jews have to leave the city because they can't stop fighting over some guy named Crestus. So clearly there were fights over Jesus, <laughs> you know, about the Jews. But I love that some guy called Crestus, they're fighting over him. And all we have to do is get rid of them, they're causing grief. So what happens is, there apparently was then a, a Gentile church formed there, and then Jews later come back. So Paul's coming to a church that at the beginning had been Jewish, then had been replaced by a Gentile church which welcomed some Jews back. So it's sort of a split church of both, uh, both types there. Okay. Um, what we have here, uh, let's see, we have the first thing, he, uh, here's the basic structure of the book. He's basically saying, when talking about this whole question about Judaism, he says, look, there's one problem and one solution. You know, one sickness, one medicine for everybody. It's really this simple. Everybody has the same disease. And there's one cure. Everybody has the same cure. That's the basic message of Rome. One disease, one cure. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, one disease, one cure. Okay. And the works he's talking about have nothing to do with good works. We have to understand Paul's talking about doing religious things, like circumcision. He's talking about works of the law. So he's not talking about you know, doing good things and earning salvation, which we don't do. He's actually specifically talking about justification that works me by following the Jewish law and keeping that. That's not, no, he said that works in the law. No. Okay. He talks about we, how do we, salvation in Christ means we actually, two things. Remember how John the Baptist says, uh, you know, I baptize you with water. Somebody's coming to baptize you with the Spirit. Something we need to understand is what that means. Is spirit in both Greek and Hebrew means breath. It's spirit, breath, or wind. And remember when Adam was created, what it says is God breathed into the man and became a living being. So here's what John is saying. John is saying, I can do the death part of dying to sin, repentance. But I can't give you new life. You know, I can, oh, I can do the death part. You know, the symbol of going back to the symbol of, death, of being buried and dying. But I can't raise you out. But somebody's coming after me, not only can, give the, can do this, but he can do that. He can not only put to death sin, he can bring to that's the spirit. He'll put God's own life. Just as God breathed into Adam, he'll breathe into you. That's what happens at your baptism. So he's saying, he's talking about life in the spirit. Baptism is where we die to our sins and are born anew. You know, born again into life. The, he talks about the ultimate restoration of Israel. 
Uh, Israel will ultimately be restored. You know, the, 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 Jewish, the Jewish project has not ended. And uh, Christian living, and how do we then live? Now, one thing I want you to notice in this, this book is it starts out, sometimes we've mentioned before that books have like theme songs. You know, like the beginning and the end of the, the television show has a theme song to tell you whether it's a drama or a romance or whatever it is, to give you the idea of the feel. Like in Matthew, it's Emmanuel at the beginning, I am with you always. You know, that's the theme. The theme of Romans, beginning and end, is obedience of faith. Notice the word obedience. Sometimes people approach Romans like it's saying, just believe some theological things and you're saved. No. He talks clearly about obedience. As a matter of fact, the first two chapters are devoted. He said, God will judge everybody based on their works. Everybody. He makes no, no partiality. So this is not saying that Christianity is a matter of just believing sort of theological things. It's always meant for the fruits of the Spirit. If we honestly believe, we don't earn anything, but you know, real belief is shown in fruits. And we'll be judged based on fruits of our beliefs. Really. Okay. He talks about two atoms. He says, why should it be impossible to think that one man can save us when one man got us into trouble? <laughs> he said, if the whole world can into trouble with that, the first Adam, this second man, you know, the second Adam, and he said, although it's a lot better than that. He says, if one man's sin would cause billions of people you know, to become sinners, he said, imagine now, what about, uh, uh, you know, after billions of sin, that a single man would be enough to get rid of billions of, uh, of people's sin since then. Okay. Now, he explains what's the place of the law. So it's very important to understand what Paul thought the place of the law was. The law is diagnostic. Okay. Let me use an example. I went to my, I have a brother who's a physician at the Sunday's one, too. Yeah, they take money from sick people. It's a family shame. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I once remember when they had that, that program, Survivor. I asked my brother, I said, it must be great being a doctor because you're on the island, everybody wants you. He said, that's only because people are stupid. I said, what do you mean by that? I said, without medicine, there's hardly anything we can do. He said, you know, I can, yeah, if you're a broken bone, I can set it. He said, but the heart of medicine is medicine. Alone, I can't do much as a doctor. I can tell you how you're going to die. <laughs> but I can't do anything about it. And I think that actually helps you. The law was a diagnostic saying you've got a problem. But it couldn't actually solve the problem. Now, diagnosis is really important. It'll save your life. Uh, those of us who've had things like that have been saved by finding out that something terrible is terribly wrong. You know, I've had that. A lot of us have had this where you are really in trouble. You know, you find a diagnostic. But it means you have to do something. You know, the diagnostic alone will not save you, but it has a salvific effect if it leads you to get help. If it shows I've got a problem, you go to the doctor. Okay. But then he says, it's, it's more than, he says, the, the law is, is sort of basically useless in this sense, that it can't actually save you. It can tell you the, what the problem is, which can bring you to where you say, but it can't actually save you. And he said, even more than this, actually, the law turns out to be harmful. How? He said two ways. The first way is this. If I, as, as a matter of law, if you do something, your ignorance of the law is not an excuse. However, if you, do, if you speed in an area where it's not clearly marked, you still can get a ticket, but they, they look by, well, that's taken into account, you know, he can be a good faith. If you see signs telling, really, we mean it, this is 20 miles, it's a school zone, you're going 50. Uh, if you're arrested under the 20 mile an hour sign, you know, it makes it even worse. I mean, it's clearly you chose to ignore the law. So he said, ironically, the law, since we can't keep the law, Sinful people can't keep the law. The law made it worse because now it's even more responsible. We, we, we couldn't plead ignorance. 
the law, if you tell people what to do, knowing they can't do it, it just makes things worse because now they're guilty of knowing they're doing bad things and they still do them. They can't help themselves. And he says, even worse than that. He said, he gives you ideas. One of the things you have to worry about when you tell kids about things like drugs and sex and things, you don't want to give them ideas they haven't had. I mean, really, is a, <laughs> you don't want to do the exact I said, I didn't even know what covetousness was until I got, you know, I wrote the commandments and that got me going. It's sort of like French television. Uh, no, here's it's funny. A little French television. They, I don't know if it's still true, but used to have these little triangles with colors to tell you um, why, as a parent, you might not want your kid to watch this. And they were color coded. But as a kid, what you learn really quickly is you don't have to waste your time on shows which aren't going anywhere. It'll tell you it's a fun nudity, all these. Things. And so it was like it was like I announced, I don't want to waste my time. This is going somewhere. I mean. <laughs> It sort of has the opposite effect. It was meant to stop you, but it actually gave people, hmm, this is worth staying, staying too. Okay, uh, so he's saying the law could have that effect. He actually gave us ideas. Okay, how did we go to that, to captivity? What was we going on here? Okay. Uh, oh, a general revelation, saying that uh, he says, well, we know, what about Gentiles? He says, we know the Jews have a special responsibility. God spoke to them, they have the law. But he said, that doesn't mean Gentiles are off the hook. He said, anybody, the basic natural law. He said, look at the world around you. There's plenty of evidence for the existence of God and his basic goodness. He said, they're not off the hook. We call that the general revelation of theology. Now, the captivity, the next thing we have is after we talk about how we're saved, first of all, the last things, how we're saved. Now, we're saved in Christ. Who is this Christ? He's so important. He says, our salvation is in Christ. He's not an agent. He is our salvation. You know, we share his life. He is our salvation. Who is Christ? Christology. Okay, the first, is we have Colossians, Philippians, and Ephesians on the letters to the... And with Colossians, what we have is Paul's in Rome. Uh, Colossae was a predominantly Gentile church. It, it's very overlapping with Ephesians. Ephesians takes whole passages of Colossians and quotes them, you know, verbatim. Okay. And the purpose, we don't know exactly what it was, but there seems to have been some trouble in the church, and the two basic problems were these. The trouble were if you're a Gentile, you're tempted towards what's called Gnosticism. What Gnosticism simply means, it's a whole bunch of different things. It basically comes down to this. The Greeks thought that physical matter was a tragic accident. They thought, look, when you think of your mind, that's beautiful and glorious. In the body, you go to the bathroom and stuff. You know, it's, it's, they thought physical stuff is disgusting, beautiful things in the mind, etc. So they look upon the body as a tragic accident. And so what they look upon, and salvation is getting out of it entirely, just living in the spiritual world of our bodies. Okay. So they tended to uh, promote things like what we call antinomianism, which means that, you know, if the body's not that important, you don't have to worry about things doesn't make any difference. Sexual right, what difference does it make? Or the opposite is we hate the body so much, try to deprive it. Don't have it, don't get it. Don't you know, try to starve yourself, you eat as little as possible to be married. It goes two opposite directions. Either you say if the body means nothing, we can just, just eat, go for broke. Or the opposite, it's so evil, I just want to, I want to, like, I want to look like I didn't have the body as much as possible. That's, that was the grief tendency. And the, uh, that would be internally within the church. And they had people from outside coming in, trying to tell them, hey, you guys, you don't get it. This is a form of Judaism. You need to follow the law of Moses, you know, the Judaizers. You need to become good Jews. So that seems to be our, our, our basic uh, problem. 
And I love this. Who is Christ? There are two creations, the first creation and the second. The first creation, Christ was there, right? He's the word for which everything is created. So he's called the firstborn of all creation because he's right there at the very beginning of creation. Is everything. God said. God said. He's at the first creation. But now he's the firstborn of this. He's also the first in the new creation. You know, that's, so he's saying, basically, he's the, he's the alpha of both, and he's the beginning of, of both. He's the image of the invisible God. So in him, we can see God. And the image that might stay with you this way is the image of, uh, in the ancient world, seals were a huge thing. Uh, they were, they're, the, they're the ancient version of barcodes. So uh, they put these, these seals on everything to show who owns something. It's an ownership tag. And here's the thing about a seal. As long as you think about it, everyone's heard of the Great Seal of England, right? Okay. And if you go to the Tower of London, you can actually see it. There's, there's a Great Seal of England that put on, you know, on these great documents that's put on by the Chancellor of England. However, if you look at a document and say, what is that? You say, oh, that's the Great Seal of England. Now, the fact is, this image is so perfect. When you put a seal on the wax, the image it leaves is perfect. So you say, if I've seen that, I have seen the Great Seal. That's the image we have. And when you see Christ, he's not the Father, but he's the perfect image of the Father. To see one is really to see the other. That makes sense to you. It's like looking at the seal of the wax. You're not seeing the, the seal, but you're seeing the perfect, perfect representation image of the seal. Okay, so he's the perfect image of the invisible God. And it says in him the fullness of God. This wasn't like part of, uh, part of God's energy. He's not like a deputy. God dwells in him. I mean, the fullness of God. In no way, there's nothing missing of God. He's not just a, a helper. You know, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, you know, in the Christ. And that means because we're in Christ, means we're lacking nothing. We have the fullness of God, Christ. We participate in the life of Christ. We're participating in the very, in God himself. If we abide in Christ, we're abiding in God, the fullness of God. Okay, uh, Philemon uh, is, if you study Greek, this is a fun letter because it's filled with puns. Paul is an inveterate puncher. And the whole thing is based on a pun. Onesimus is the Greek word meaning the name of the slave. There's a slave who had gone, it was a escape, runaway slave. And Paul converts it. And his name's Onesimus, which means useful. And so Paul says it's not the right thing, you know, but you need to go back. He writes a letter saying, look, I'm sending it back. It's the right thing to do. But I'm going to ask you a personal favor, you know, to, uh, since he's our brother in Christ, to give him a freedom. I'm not going to command. I'm going to ask you as a personal favor, you know, for me to do this. And, like, one of the puns is he said, you know, actually, he's Onesimus, but he's really pretty useless to you when he became a Christian. Now he's really useful. <laughs> Ironically, he's running away and he's somebody who, you have to read it. It's funny. Okay, but then he has the idea. <laughs> You know, he was called useful, but he used to be useless. Now he's a real useful, he's a brother in Christ. You know, what used to be useless has become useful. That's not, he's a lot of problems. He decided to go, there's a pun happening. Okay. In the ancient world, they consider puns a serious form of literature. Okay. Okay, uh, it's a beautiful letter. I mean, it's just uh, his thing of saying, I'm just appealing to you. And he said, if he's done anything wrong, I'll personally pay, put on my tab. I'll pay anything he's done. You know, I, I, here's what I'm asking you to do. Ephesians. Ephesus was the leading city in Asia, which is the west part of Turkey, today's Turkey. Okay. Uh, it was the center of this great cult of uh, Diana, sort of the Vatican of, Di of the goddess Diana. 
Okay, and he stayed there once for two years. Now, it's general in nature. We have no one specified, no specific problem. It's a really a theological treatise. It's not a letter. Okay, and it draws heavily on Colossians. Again, a lot of it takes whole phrases and things. Now, it's talking about the church. It's, you know, we talk about Christ. The church is the fullness of Christ. Where do we find Christ? And he says, look at this line. He's put all things, meaning the Father. The Father has put all things under, under Christ's feet and given him as head of all things to the church, which is his body. And look at how it describes that body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. He says, well, you know, if Christ is the fullness of God, well, if the church is his body, that means the church contains the fullness of God. It's a temple that contains the fullness of God. So it's a very powerful idea of the church. And he talks about the church also is a commonwealth. Um, uh, you know, basically like a mutual aid, a society built for mutual aid. The household of God, we might miss this, the ancient world didn't have nuclear families. So it's much rich writing. In the ancient world, people lived with multiple generations and also with maiden aunts and all these kind of things, and slaves, etc. So a household is a small community. This is like a household, a whole richness, diversity of people. It's a household of faith. By the way, one of the reasons they were led that way is you couldn't have able-bodied people who did work. So mothers didn't stay with their children. Mothers worked, and the grandparents took care of the kids. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> because you couldn't have able-bodied people not working unless you were rich. Okay. Um, the holy temple of the Lord, because since God dwells in the church, the temple is where God dwells, right? So that's where we find God. That's where we actually come into the presence of God. And the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Think of it this way. We say spirit is bread. Well, where do you find the spirit? Where do you find somebody's breath? In their body, right? You know somebody's living because you have the chest going up and down. So you say, where do you find it? It's, it's the, you know, we find it's the dwelling place of God by the spirit. God's breath is in his body. You, that's where you look for the spirit. And it includes Jews and Gentiles. Okay. And he says, again, unity. Why is the church one? He said, this is a fact. Because there's only one body. Christ doesn't have multiple bodies. He's not like a, a Hindu divinity. Okay, he's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one, one God. He said, the church is one, whether we recognize it or not. It's just a fact. Okay. Then he talks about gifts as he says, about diversity of gifts. Okay. Putting off the old self, putting on the new self. Uh, mutual submission and talking about marriage as being the... And why is marriage the sign of the church? You know, husband and wife. Because remember it says in Genesis, he quotes, and Genesis says they're no longer two, but one body. You know, they're one flesh. So he's saying because Christ, the church is Christ's body, it means they become one. You know, so we, you know, that's the, so the marriage is the image of what Christ and his church. And it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. Now here we have background, Philippi, Roman colony. What Roman colony meant is here's how Romans, uh, an army career in the Roman world was a per permanent career. You know, you, you had to serve like 20, 25 years. And what they did is when you finished your career, they would settle you down with land and things. It was all Roman, excellent Roman soldiers. That was called the colonial colony. And this meant there was like a little, a little Rome everywhere you went in these places. So Roman colony, that's ironically in the middle of anywhere. It's basically a Roman city in the middle of somewhere else. It's just completely Roman. So there's a Roman city here with Philippi, a colony there on the Via Ignatia, which is the main road, it's a very important place, the main road between the Adriatic Sea and the Aegean Sea. It's the first church on the continent of Europe, written about 55 AD during the uh, Tone and Joy. Uh, this is a fun letter. He just loves these people and they love him. 
Philippians. I love this. He says, uh, all I care about is the advancement of the gospel. Some people say, aren't you upset? Remember, like, like Joshua went to Joe Moses, aren't you upset? Some other people are, are, are this precinct. No, he said, all I care about is the gospel. I don't care how it's moving on. If people are just trying to make, trying to make more converts to show me, I'm great. More people being converted. He said, my heart is simply with, with the gospel. And he says, joy in all circumstances. This is important, like in Nehemiah, where Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The need of joy is the real Christian witness. I've got to tell you that in ministry. One of the reasons Christianity gets a bad name justly for some people is, where is the joy? The joy is, when you've met the Lord, the, the, the joy is what would persuade you. In the ancient world, people were persuaded that they saw martyrs who were happy that they were being martyrs. They know they're about to see the Lord. Joy is the witness that is real. When somebody tells you they have the winning lottery ticket, and yet you see them, you know, raging about putting down a tip. You know, you simply, the, the, the stories don't seem to match. Uh, we have that wonderful, um, uh, it was probably a hymn, that had, you know, Christ didn't consider being God something you aspire to. He pours himself out. You know, he made himself, not just human, the lowest type of human. Oh, like a slave, and dying the worst kind of death, the death on the cross. He gave up everything. Love is all about him. Say, Christ giving was the most dramatic you could imagine. He held nothing back. Okay. And I love work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. So it's like, God always does what we do, but he asks us to do it. So we don't get any credit for it. You know, we, God is the one, anything good we do is God working in us. But he expects us to, to allow him to work in us. That's what he talks about, working out yourself. This is not a spectator thing. It's not passive, being a Christian is active. Because we're allowing God's power to work through us. Themes, righteousness through faith in Christ versus the flesh. The already not yet, I press to make it of my own. And I love, I've learned to be content in all situations. And the secret for that, frankly, is to understand with providence, by definition, whatever happens fits into God's way. God even used evil for good. Always remember the crucifixion, the people who crucified Christ weren't trying to save the world. But God can even use sin to bring about his purposes. So the reason we rejoice in all circumstances is knowing that no matter what circumstance we're in, by being a faithful witness in those circumstances, we bring glory, we promote God's plan. We bring partners with God. That's why it's genuine. I, I thought some of, the some of the saints in concentration camps who were such witnesses to people who despaired because they, they, even in those situations, they were helping other people in an impossible situation. They were light in the darkness. You know, that kind of... So every situation is possible. Every, there's no situation that can't be redeemed. Then the release and second imprisonment. Uh, we have uh, 1 Timothy, background, uh, written at the same time as the letter to Titus. He's in Ephesus, Titus is in Greek. Here are the big things. Now we're going, the fourth phase of letters is about the church, our life together as church. Because we're really getting out there. These are later. We're really getting pulled out there in years. Things, you know, churches have to be more established. People have been in the church have been around now for years. The first thing is he reminds them of Paul's apostolic authority in case people challenge it. Say, remember that my authority is apostolic authority. People start trying to bring the thing. What about Paul? He warns about false teachers. And one thing he talks about is pointless controversies. And a classic thing that happened here <coughs> was Gnostics and Jews who, who were influenced by them. Here's what they had. If we say God is perfect, if, if matter is bad, or anything physical is bad, God must be the ultimate non-physical, which is true, he's his complete spirit. 
But how do you get from something perfectly non, non-matter to matter? How do you get from here to there? What, what, what happened? And they come up with these crazy stories about, well, this goes out sort of like, like rays going out of the sun before you get to get darker. You know, somehow they had, they had these phenomenal things of all sorts of, of different creatures and beings who at different levels. And he said, this is nonsense. He's saying, this is crazy talk. Don't get into this stuff. You're way out of your depth. You're talking about things that it's actually sacrilegious. You're talking, you're saying inappropriate things about sacred things like angels and life. You need to get out of that stuff. Another idea, which I think is valuable for us, is this is a big theme in all three letters, is what we call piety. Piety has nothing to do with modern English literature. We think of piety as being sort of holy, right? Having the biggest Bible in church, you know, that kind of thing. We think of, of old women as being pious. Here's Pietas was a very, in the word in Greek is Eusebia. You've heard that idea. That's a popular word. Why is it so popular? What does piety mean? The ancient world believed that all human relation, that the, the right order was people behave, for example, if I, I'm a son and a husband and father and brother, you know, these kind of things, that, that human right, I should be a good son. What do good sons do? What do good fathers do? What do good colleagues do? They put all life in terms of right relationship. Right relationship. This is what you say your piety means. It means right, being in right relationship. Being what you're supposed to be. When you, you know, if you're, if you're sort of being a good servant, your master being a good master, everything. How should I act? That's called that's piety, right? Called Eusebia in Greek, and that's why they talk so much about it. This was the main thing that Romans and Greeks believed in, as far as how you behave. So here's what they're supposed. Paul saying in all these letters, he's saying, you know, they're right about this. That we should behave this way. So he said, there's no reason for us as Christians not to follow these rules, which are basic. We should be, we should be better than everybody doing this. We shouldn't say because we're Christian, we don't have to worry about right relationship. We should be better than that. So he's saying, we don't, and we also get scandalous. We're not doing the things everybody knows are good things, the right thing to do. How are we going to have any credibility? So he says, don't think that we have some, we agree, let's, let's maximize what we do agree on. We all agree in right relationship. So we've got to set an example of being the most right in relationship, not of saying, well, that's what the Romans do. Okay. He talks about how do we choose our overseers and elders and deacons. Uh, he says, by the way, some people were scandalized, saying, how come we're having divisions within the church? And he said, you shouldn't be scandalized because I told you in advance you wouldn't be scandalized. This will happen. It's like when you go to, to general procedures with doctors. You get all the young, you haven't had these things. But like if you have a, a lumbar puncture, for example, not fun, but uh, when you have them, the doctor tells you things like he gives you play by play. Now, right here, it's going to hurt for a minute. You know, it will hurt for about five seconds of passing here. And that's, he said, that's going to help you. So you don't think something will wrong, it, it would heal, no, no, right now it's going to hurt for a little bit, but it will stop it. We expect this now. This is a normal reaction. So he's saying that here. He's saying, look, he said, I shouldn't be surprised. You know, it's predicted the prophet said this would happen. You know, we've told you, so don't think that something is going wrong to be taken by surprise. He said, he, uh, he also said, what, some of the things they're talking about are because these Gnostics, they're saying you shouldn't get married. They're saying you shouldn't eat regular foods. You know, some of these anti-body people. And he said, this, he called this the doctrines of devils. So the body's good. You know, we should that's nonsense stuff. We shouldn't be, this, this stuff is not Christian. He talks about Timothy's authority. So you, uh, he talks about how, what is right conduct look if you're a leader in the church? Because you should be an example of right relationship. What is right relationship with the elderly? You've got to, even though you're charged of the church, you've got to be respectful with the old people. And this is, you're in a different world where there's no respect for old people. 
there's a reason sociologically for that. In the ancient world, old people were the most economically valuable because technology didn't change, so they had the most experience. What has changed in your age is that, frankly, the new stuff, people, older people have less experience. <laughs> so, but in the ancient world, old people really looked upon this as, as this pinnacle. And he's saying, you have to be careful. You're a young guy. You've got to show proper deference you know, to, to older people in the church. The widows, you know, the church leaders. Uh, warnings, again, watch out about uh, controversy over the world. Watch out for turning the church into a business. It's easy to get because you're making your living doing this. Remember, it's not a job. You can never reduce ministry to job. We might earn our we might earn our living through this, but it's not like other jobs. Other jobs are simply a way to make it. Ministry can never be just another job. And then he says here, and watch out for love of money. Uh, and he said again, guarding the uh, deposit that's been entrusted to you. Titus. Uh, uh, he was from completely Gentile background. He has a Latin name. He's at the Jerusalem. Con uh, uh, he was very close at the Jerusalem Council. He is very close to Paul, like Timothy was. We find him. He was the one who carried the letter written in tears. You know, to the Church of Corinth. He also uh, is uh, involved in Second Corinthians. He is left behind in Crete, and he's told appointment of elders or overseers. Again, hold firm to what you're taught. That's, that's, the, that's the solid line. Just remember what you were taught and don't move away from it. Um, conduct yourself properly. You should conduct yourself in such a way that outsiders are impressed. That a Roman says, you know, that guy is a great Roman. I mean, he, he has all the things we all know is good. He should, you should be an example to outsiders, not a scandal. And he says, avoid controversies and divisions. Don't get into things that are going to just result in needless controversies. And the last thing we have is uh, 2 Timothy, Paul's last will and testament. And he said, okay, these are my last words. He said, again, remember, don't keep the faith I've given you. This is the kernel of the faith. You don't want to lose it. And I love that he gives three examples that I think are great for us in ministry. He says, here's what doing ministry is. He said, three things. Remember, you're a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. A soldier knows that you have to keep your focus. I mean, when people are trying to kill you, or coming after you, you can't, this is not the time to daydream. A soldier has to focus on what's happening. It's a life or death thing. You've got to focus. This is not the time to wander off. An athlete knows you have to follow the rules, right? You can't win if you don't follow the rules. You have to be very careful, you know, to be within the lines. Another thing, the farmer knows there's no substitute for hard work. There's not going to be a crop if we're not out there on this hard day working the field. He said, those are the three things. I love that. Isn't that great for ministry? Is keep your focus, follow the rules, and let you know, don't forget the basic outlines of what we're doing. And it's going to be a lot of hard work. To tell you right at the front end, you're going to be a farmer, a lot of hard work. It'll be worth it, the harvest, but it's hard work. And he said, again, don't worry about godlessness. People predict this, you know, that's not a surprise. He talks about the incomparable value of Scripture. He says, even for us, he says, this he talks, he's talking about the Old Testament. He says, it has everything you need to be fully, uh, you know, full, fully grown man of faith. The, the scriptures delivered you. Preaching the word, he said, in season, out of season, uh, we're always, we're always, it's always time to preach, preach the gospel. Okay. It's goodbye. I fought the fight. He's saying, I'm saying goodbye to you. You know, it's that time. I fought the fight, finished the race, I've kept the faith. Okay. And faith also has another meaning that you know, we used to have it in English. Uh, in English, when you talk about someone being faithless to the wedding, what do you mean? They haven't kept their promise to you. They're, they're, they've been dis disloyal. 
So faith means to keep your to keep your pledge. So when he says, "I kept the faith, I kept my pledge," you know, I've been, I've, I've, he's like someone who hasn't been unfaithful in marriage. It's faith in that sense. Okay. Uh, the path, he says, you, the, the path to heaven, you die to live, you endure to reign. The way of the cross is the way of life. But Christ, what, Easter Sunday always goes through Good Friday. Right, that's the, the way. And with that, let's quickly look at some questions here. What is the operating principle for arranging the letters of Paul? Now, I encourage cheating. If you're not cheating, you're just not trying to. So for you to look back on, the, on your earlier uh, slides no or something. Here. What's that? No athletes here. Yeah. <laughs> no athletes here. Yes. Well, that right. There's two things. One is, is it to a church or to a person? And then we have, with the exception of Philemon, which is written in St. John's Day, the uh, but otherwise, is it, is it to a church or to a person? People later, and within the churches, the length of the letter. Okay. What are the two? Cat uh, we have the two categories within the letters of Paul: churches, etc. What epistle is most closely related to Paul's letter to Galatians? Romans. Romans. Romans is if I if I wasn't mad and I had more time, this is the letter I would have written. Okay. Uh, which epistles give us the most personal information about Paul? Yes. Second Corinthians. Yeah, 2 Corinthians. Wow. We, we, would, we would, would know a fraction of what we know frankly, about Paul without 2 Corinthians. It's amazing. Okay. What's the key play on words found in the letter to Philemon? Yes, sir. Anesimus and the useful. Yeah, so he, he, he was called useful. He was really useless. And now that he's away from you, he's become useful. Okay. Feel free to laugh all day. Okay, and what's the earliest of Paul's letters? Thessalonians, First Thessalonians. And one last thing here. We're going to do some. Here are the three, the four categories of letters by based on period. And here's the main theme. His second missionary journey. This is the earliest letters he wrote. What was the main theme of the earliest letters? Eschatology. Why? Because the first thing, he's, he's just left, and he's coming back. So people actually, they're nervous. I understandably, by he's going to be back. So the first thing is, what do we mean by living in the last time? Eschatology. The third missionary journey, the second group that he had. What's the main thing there? Once we know what the eschatology is, soteriology, our saving. What, how, what, what does this mean, our salvation? You know, what do we mean by salvation? You know, what is that? How about captivity? The third group. Christology. Christology. We find out our salvation is the person of Jesus Christ. So who is that person? Who is the, the fullness of God dwells in? He's the perfect image of the Father. And finally, what are we going to be doing for the rest of time with release later prison? Ecclesiology. How do we live together as a community? Okay, well, very patiently, we went eight minutes over. Okay. And good to see uh, see you guys from uh, from it's a stage group. Where's it from? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, excellent. Great to have you guys. Thank you.